welcome to Bible study. This is Len standing in for Nick, and I would like you to meet the people on the panel this morning. First of all, we have Helen. Hi, lovely to be with you all again. Helen will be our facilitator today, and then we have Will. Hello there. Yes, and I'm part of the panel too. We have a panel of three. So, Helen, it's over to you. Thank you, Len. Yes, it's a delight to be here. We've got a, an interesting study again about Paul. But just before we start and we're going to open the Bible, I'd ask Will, would you have prayer with us, please? With pleasure. We're thankful, dear Lord, that we have the ability of looking back in history, seeing in the lives of others who have trusted you the wonderful outcome for the benefit of Jesus Christ and his gospel on earth. I pray that that may happen in our minds and souls today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Will. Well, first of all, I would like to review our last study where we looked at Paul's second missionary journey, which had its exciting moments, but also times of persecution. As we noticed, he would go into a, a town, into a synagogue, they would worship, some would believe, some wouldn't, and sadly, those that didn't turned on him, he would end up in prison or being beaten, and he'd move on to the next one. But God gave Paul a great promise, and if Paul had any doubt that God accompanied him throughout the missionary journeys, that would have vanished as he thought of God's affirmation to him in Corinth. So I'm going to ask the panel that as we read about that in the first part of Acts 18.10, what was that affirmation? Well, let me read the text. I think it's best to let the Lord speak himself. He says, For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So he virtually said, I am with you. Wonderful. That was a great promise. And uh, can I ask the panel also, Matthew one twenty three and Revelation 21.3. Let's just have a look and see what they say. It's like bookends in the New Testament. These are both telling us the same thing. So if you don't mind, Matthew one twenty three and Revelation 21.3. I was going to say before uh, we read that Paul had plenty of reasons to be discouraged. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he'd been... Um, beaten, he'd been the centre of uh, riots, he'd been in jail. And, and we are going to talk about all that too, yeah. yeah. But uh, mm. the fact that the Lord promised to be with him was something which made all the difference. And he trusted God implicitly, didn't he? Yes. It's wonderful. Yes. Matthew one twenty three says, um, the word virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thank you, Will. Len? Yes. All right, Revelation 21, 3. John is in vision, and he said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Isn't that just beautiful? As I said, it's like two ends, isn't it? Uh, two bookends in the New Testament. One that says, Emmanuel, God with us, and the other one said, God shall be with them. Mm. But he, he also gave an amazing pro promise to us when he gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20. So we, I'm sure we all remember it, but the last part says what? I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So is that... Exclusive or inclusive? Inclusive of everybody. Yes, and inclusive mm -hmm. of all time. There is yes. no exclusions there whatsoever. God says, 
Jesus made this promise, I'm with you, even to the end of the world. Even it adds an extra dimension yes, in there. Yes, yes, and and that's wonderful to hang on to that because sometimes it's difficult when we feet when we come across difficulties and trials in our life. But let's have a look at Paul. When looking at Paul's life, we notice that Paul's summary of what his with God ministry included, which was what. Most people would have um, stopped after the first, but <laughs> he endured five whippings, each including 40 lashes minus one. In other words, 39 each time. He had, oh, by the way, that was 195 lashes. Can you imagine what his back would have looked like after that? Mm. Three times he was beaten with rods, once stoned and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked, and he spent a day and a night adrift at sea, probably hanging on to some um, part of the timbers of the ship. He spoke of multiple dangers, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, cold and nakedness. And eventually, although he couldn't write about this, um, Paul was martyred for the sake of Jesus. Wow, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Sure is. Goodness, yeah. just going through one or two of that would have been enough. That's amazing. Well, some people get turned off when somebody says something that they don't like. <laughs> that's true, <laughs> Lynn, that's true. Yeah. Suffering can serve greater ends, though, because we saw that Paul's beatings and imprisonment in Philippi led to a conversion of whom? Well, we have the uh, jailer, Philippi, and the story in Acts tells us that not only he was ultimately uh, baptized and saved, but the message was carried to his family as well. So suffering did have its fruit right there. And that, that was something that we learned about last study, wasn't it? Yes. We looked into that in quite detail. Paul's extensive suffering does not negate the personal protective care of God, though. We're mostly ignorant of the events that God actually prevents. Mm -hmm. Pain and suffering in the world, it's the number one fact used to deny the existence of God. And I hear this many times. I, in fact, I heard recently that uh, someone said, oh, I, I don't believe in God. Uh, I don't need God, and then in the next breath, almost cursing God for all the pain and suffering in the world, which I thought, well, if you don't believe in God, how can you blame someone you don't believe in? But sometimes we may ourselves similarly deny God's presence in our lives because of pain and suffering. Suffering's a complex issue, and we should be slow to assume that suffering means being abandoned by God. Would anybody on the panel care to elaborate that point? Yes, I would. I thought Thanks, about Lynn. trees when growing a young tree. If that tree is not exposed to any um, elements, in other words, strong winds and heavy rain, hail, etc., etc., it might grow up straight, but it's not very strong and it won't be very deep rooted. Good point. On mm. the other hand, if it's subject to many things like wind and storm and so on, it'll grow strong. And I think the same works with people. If we're never s subject to any temptations, we're never subject to anything that's beyond everything being sweet and lovely, well, we'll just grow up like a tender flower, can't handle anything. And God wants warriors, not just namby-pambies. Mm -hmm. 
It occurs to me, Lynn, that um, there may be many of people, the people surrounding us that uh, are facing difficulties uh, that seem insurmountable and um, pain and uh, challenges that they look to God and wonder, why is this being allowed? And, you know, I take a, a practical lesson from people like Paul and uh, many others in the Scriptures. Even the greats like Moses and Abraham went through their severe trials right throughout. And I think that we can come out the other end a stalwart, strengthened, and knowing that God is with us in mm. these times. Yeah. And so I think that we should encourage one another to see the difficult times through with God. Yeah. I think there's another aspect of this too. God sometimes brings good outcomes from bad experiences. And he shows his power. Sometimes these bad experiences can really rock one's boat, so to speak. But God can bring good outcomes. And he promises to be with us. He doesn't say he will prevent any problems from happening. But he promises to be with us even in those troubled times. That is so, so true. Um, speaking of my own, my own life, I've seen God work so many times. And I remember when I was early, an early Christian and things would happen, I would yell at God and say, why? Why? It was on my lips all the time. Why is this happening? But, you know, as I've gone through my life and God has become more and more important in my life, I look back over my life and I see exactly what you said, Len. I can see the good things he's brought out of it and the lessons that I've learned. And now when things happen, it's why not? Why mm. not God? Mm. Because out of it, and, and I, I think you gentlemen also know that I went through an amazing um, time of sickness, illness on my back um, with a pierced lung, and God chose to heal me. And that was a couple of years now, and I, I just glorify him. You know, to know that he was with me even on that that bed of pain, yeah. and when and even on in, down in the pit, some of us have been down in the pits of despair. And and listeners, I've got to tell you that God is there; mm. He's down there with you, helping you out. Well, let's move on to today's study, the third and final missionary journey of Paul as a free man. And I believe this journey started at Antioch, as did the two previous journeys, and was somewhere in the vicinity of 1,500 miles. When I studied that and I was reading a commentator, I thought, oh, wow, some of us just don't even walk, want to walk as far as the letterbox <laughs> or around the block. And, and look what they did. Amazing. But we're going to look briefly at several passages in Acts chapters 18 to 21 and 1 Corinthians 4, 8 to 14. So let's start off with Acts 18:23, please. Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul's pattern of work teaches us something about the new believers and how they treated them. So what do you think it is, and is there a lesson for us three? You've just read it, Will, in verse 23. Well, he was strengthening all the disciples. And uh, he had to uh, see how their spiritual condition was going, strengthening them, helping them, encouraging them, not uh, just uh, leaving them converted and um, leaving them on their own, nurturing, in other words. I consider, how did he do this? 
no doubt he um, reminded them of where they made the decision that Jesus was crucified, rose again for them. But I also think that in doing the strengthening, he told them of the experiences that he and the other helpers who went with him had and how the Lord saw them through in those difficult times. I think Christianity was different back then than it is now. I think at the moment, at least here in Australia, it's pretty easy to be a Christian. But it wasn't easy to be a Christian back then. There was persecution from many, many quarters. And I think in Paul speaking to the people how God had led through this and had saved him through that and so on and so on, that really encouraged them. Yeah, Len, I think there are some people, though, even in Australia, that it's not easy for them, depending on their family and their culture and what have you. But not like the other countries, absolutely, and not like the um, times of Paul. Mm. But I'm reminded of a quote that I read, and it says, we've got nothing to fear for the future except we forget the way God has led us yes. in the past in his teachings. And, and I agree with you. I believe that Paul was testifying to that in strengthening them. Okay, so next we are introduced to a Jewish believer named Apollos. So what can you tell me about Apollos and his story? And we find that in Acts eighteen twenty-four to 28. Would you like me to read that? That would be lovely, thank you. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Oh, interesting. Will, you want to say something? Yes, mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that you haven't heard of this man becoming a great um, in Scripture. Um, up to here, we find this person almost unknown, and um, we find that he has a wonderful talent given by God to speak to people for God, and especially in public speaking. And we find that when Apollos arrives in Ephesus, Shortly after Paul's departure, he makes an immediate impact. He has the ability of speaking boldly in public and uh, interpreting and applying the Old Testament scriptures effectively. God's using um, just about, well, everyone willing except Paul, outside of Paul, to do his work for him. But Apollos didn't have the whole story, did he? No. no. What was his preaching based on? Well, it was based on the baptism of John, which was about repentance. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a whole lot that he missed out, although he was very zealous. Uh, it appears also that Apollos didn't just work in this region, that Apollos also worked in Corinth in Greece. Because Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, I think it is, I, Paul, sowed the seed. Apollos watered it, and the Holy Spirit made it grow. So Apollos was very much used in the spreading of the gospel 
and also of consolidating and strengthening the churches. So he would have known the Old Testament, though, wouldn't he? Oh, yes. Fairly well. Okay, so he had natural abilities. It could have made him proud, couldn't it? Mm. He could have, oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and you know, he's up there in front, but he had a natural ability. But he also proved he was willing to learn because you told me before, God used some people to teach him. He was teachable. Who did he use? Priscilla and Aquila, according to Acts, uh, filled out the picture for him. It, it, it appears to me as if he had um, bringing the, 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 the teachings of John the Baptist, or as much as he had learned from John the Baptist. Clearly there was a lot that had happened since John the Baptist. In fact, if you think about it, not even John the Baptist would have known about the events coming with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and so on, and um, he might have something to say one day in the re, in mm. the day of reward. So we find uh, Priscilla and Aquila telling him about the life of Jesus, which uh, he more about the life of Jesus, death and resurrection, and uh, he certainly would have uh, learned about the Holy Spirit. And uh, Paulus must have seen scripture after scripture become clear to him. He was filled with new energy boldness and uh, he had now had the complete gospel it reminds me somewhat of the people that were walking on the appian way sorry the the emmaus way to emmaus they knew a lot but uh, their hearts would have thrilled within them when jesus spoke to them filling out the truth for them and um, this is what happened to uh, to apollos i just like to like to add and it says in the beginning of um, verse 24 of Acts 18, Apollos was a Jew. He was a native of Alexandria, which is northern Africa. And Alexandria, well, it's part of Egypt, I think, was um, known as uh, being a place of learning because there was a library there. And it points out to me how God can use different people. When you think of the disciples who followed Jesus, they were humble, simple, uneducated fishermen. But here we have a scholar. Mm. Apollos was a scholar. And God used him to further the work of spreading the gospel throughout the world. That's a very good point. Very good point, Lynn that if we're willing to be made willing and give our lives over to God, he can certainly use us, can't he? Mm. I recall that uh, the disciples approached Jesus once and said, oh, Lord, uh, we've discovered somebody that's teaching. He's really not part of us. <laughs> and Jesus gave an interesting answer. He that is not against us is uh, for us. Mm. So God is, God is able to um, choose, elect people from all walks of life to represent him. Yeah. And uh, we mustn't be surprised to learn wonderful and new things from the simplest of people that uh, we encounter. Just want to give a little illustration. Sorry to dwell on this, Helen. Okay. <laughs> um, when I was young, there was a man who was a market gardener invited to preach in a little country church, and I heard him preach. And you know, I've heard hundreds of sermons but just one point from his sermon, this simple sermon taken from nature, he was talking about weeds. He was a market gardener, so weeds 
uh, figured fairly significantly in his life. He said, when they're little, they're easy to kill. When they're big, they're hard to get rid of. And he applied that to sins. Mm. When, when somebody has little sin, maybe it's the first time or second time, he said, all right, easy to get rid of, but when it becomes set as a habit, very hard to get rid of. Yeah, thank you, Lean. Okay, so let's move on. Paul next headed off to Ephesus. So tell me what happened when he arrived there. Acts, Acts 19 verses 1 to 7 summarizes it well. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answer, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Thank you, Will. Then, have you got something there you want to add? <clears throat> yes, I've got something that I'd like to share. On his arrival at Ephesus, Paul found 12 brethren who, like Apollos, had been disciples of John the Baptist and like him had gained some knowledge of the mission of Christ. They had not the ability of Paulus, but with the same sincerity and faith, they were seeking to spread abroad the knowledge they had received. They were willing workers with what they had. So they were going to have an opportunity to enjoy deeper experience with the Lord. It occurs to me that it's possible to serve the Lord with all your heart without understanding everything that you need to understand. Good point, Will. And there is there are phases sometimes in the Christian experience, a time when you become have a deeper and a richer infilling yes. uh, of God. And that's when the Lord, well, the, your Lord uses you all along, but you become in your life so much more effectual, so much more relevant to the needs around you when you allow the Holy Spirit to take over. I think it's a bit like, Will, the way I look at it, that when you come to, to know the Lord and you start to learn, it would be terrible if he actually gave us all the light at once. It would be like being in a, uh, a darkened cell and somebody throws the, the, the door open and shines a spotlight right in your eyes. Your first initial reaction would be to turn away. And, and I believe God is gracious. He gives us light as we can take it, and then he adds to it as we follow that light. In fact, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I have many things to tell you, but you're not ready to receive it. So it seems as if there was, they, they, they weren't able to uh, accept the full uh, oh. radiance of the light. God had to do it in stages. Yes, yes. I think there's another issue. Truth is progressive. Good point. No, anybody who says, I know it all, <laughs> doesn't know it all. Because what happens as we acquire knowledge, You, the next, say, um, computer science. 
somebody discovers this and they build it into their computers and their um, programs and so on and then from that somebody discovers something else and so there's a build-up of knowledge and I think it applies also in the scriptures mm. we don't mm. know it or we don't understand all the meanings but the more we expose ourselves to it the more we will learn and become more effective. Mm, good point, then. Good point. Okay, so it would appear now. Apollos had been baptized, had he not? Yes. 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 And now it would appear that he absolutely he actually got baptized a second time. So wasn't the first baptism enough? Well, no, it wasn't. It was a baptism of he dedicated himself to the Lord because that was a baptism of repentance. He acknowledged he was a sinner, and that baptism, he was like saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to serve you. But he wasn't baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That part was missing. So it was a unique situation, wasn't it? It surely so was. So it's not really giving us counsel that we can, you know, we're baptized and then we go off the rails or somewhere and... Or, no, we don't go off the rails, but, you know, we not, haven't got all the the um, knowledge and and then we get a little bit more light and so we say, oh, yeah, we want to get baptised again mm. and again and again. That's not what it's about, is it? No. Mm -hmm. No. Okay, well, we'll go on a little bit further in Ephesus. Paul followed his practice of preaching in the synagogue first. We learnt that over the last couple of studies. But here we see how after opposition arose that he and the new believers actually moved out of the synagogue. And, um, you know, it, they went to a lecture hall where Paul preached daily for two years. So what does Luke say was the result of all this? Shall I read it from Please Acts do. 19, yes. verses 8 to 10? Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, the way is the name of the Christians. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Just think of it. Think if he gave one sermon a day for two years, that's over 700 sermons, and you, you wonder what he had to say. But I suspect that there were new people came in and they had to hear about the basics of Christianity again and again. I don't think he had a different subject every time. It makes you wonder, did he spend hours in studying? Or was he being used by the Holy Spirit? Probably both, I think. Mm. Mm. I think you're right. He was well. a scholar. It, it because I wondered, sorry, I just wondered how he fitted in with all his tent making as well. <laughs> sorry, come on. It's, it's, um, it's encouraging to see that one man used by the Holy Spirit could uh, bring um, conviction and part conversion to an entire district, an entire state. Mm. He must his province. He must have been a very compelling speaker. Yes, because if you listen to somebody 
um, for a long period of time, you tend to grow weary of them. But Paul must have held their attention. We're going to see later on where one person's attention wasn't held, but we'll talk about that soon. But, but before we go <laughs> yes. to that, mm-hmm. it talks about some of these Jews, they refused and became obstinate. You know, I find this rather strange. Some people refuse to believe that black is black and white is white, and it cannot be demonstrated that black is red and white is green. But they will not accept it. They become obstinate. I think it's also called tunnel vision, isn't it? Well, it could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, we must recognise that there are plenty of, pe- plenty of people in the world who've heard the message of the gospel, just will not change for mm. whatever reason. Mm. Mm. I, I remember years ago, you know, we think, oh, no, we won't have that sort of tunnel vision, what have you. But just very briefly, years ago, I was um, working for a company and I had to go around different corporations and into homes and uh, demonstrate a particular machine. And I was called to this home and my son said, I know this man. He's a footballer. And my son was right into sport. And he said, oh, mum, get his um, autograph. And I remember I went with a friend and she sat in the car and I went up the door and I teed up a time, knocked on the door. and This person came out and, you know, we sort of conversed and went in. And I'm thinking football. Okay, football. That was all I kept thinking, football. And I walked down the hallway and here was all posters on cricket. And I thought, this guy's into football, but he's got all these posters. And, you know, I was so focused, tunnel vision, I tell you, I was so focused on this man is a footballer that it didn't make sense to me. So we went, we talked, and when I'd finished, I said to him, look, my son is so keen on um, sport. Um, I'm sure he'd love your autograph. And I had done nothing but grizzle about the cricketers' well-being on late at night, thinking still football. And I said, I've only got my business card. And he said, oh, I've got a picture. Pulls out a picture signs this picture and here is this man in cricket uniform and I'm thinking football still football I had all the evidence around me but I still thought football now I think of it then and I think and I think now how could I be so focused not to see and it wasn't until we actually I got out to the car with the picture and I tossed the picture at my friend I said so much for football this guy seems to like cricket and and she couldn't talk for a few moments it turned out to be one of our Australian cricketers (laughs) but there's an example of tunnel vision and sometimes we get that way even with scripture and I think we've all probably probably seen it. Well, okay, Luke adds a few miracle stories describing the triumph of God's power in a city where magic and other superstitious practices were rather common. So could somebody please read Acts nineteen, eleven and twelve? Yes, I have it here. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sieva, a Jewish, Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked 
and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I think that's probably a little more than what we were going to look at, right? Oh, at this moment, Will, okay. but thank you. It's, it's worth um, reading that. But I just want to go back to verses 11 and 12 where Paul had healing power, but even the handkerchiefs and aprons touched by the apostle appeared to have the healing power. And does that not remind you of when the woman touched yes. the hem of Jesus' garment? But why would God use this method of healing the people? By the way, did the handkerchiefs or the aprons have a particular power? No. No, we need to be clear on that one. But why would God use this message of healing, this way of method of healing people right now? I think we need to consider the culture of the day. Good. A lot of people um, put a lot of um, recognition into magic arts and the like. Now, I don't think any magician could replicate what happened in this case. And therefore, it got a lot of attention and it became known throughout the region there was this man who spoke in the name of the Lord Jesus who could heal people and even drive out evil spirits without any direct contact mm. with them. And, uh, of course, this would have aroused a lot of interest in the area. Mm. I think the fact that the Ephesians... Uh, were very superstitious people. And those superstitious beliefs may have led God to perform this extraordinary type miracle um, like we've just read. And this is perhaps, uh, to me, an example of how God meets the needs of people at their own level of understanding. Mm, very, very true. Now, Will, you've, you've already read some of the, the interesting story that we had of others that were attempting to cast out demons. But, however, sadly our time is restricted. But I do recommend, listeners, that you spend more time after our broadcast in the study of those texts. Go into it a little bit deeper, if you may. Okay, but Acts 19:22 to 41 talks about opposition that Paul faced once again. So what was the real reason for this opposition? Well, it was an economic reason because um, Paul was talking about um, these little gods and things that, uh, well, there was the silversmith named Demetrius who had quite a good business going in Ephesus because Ephesus was the home of the goddess Artemis and visitors who came to this area would go home with a little souvenir god. Was this the same as the goddess Diana? Well, yes, as far as I know. Yeah. Yes. And um, Paul was coming in and saying, look, these things are totally worthless and useless. You need to worship the God of heaven who created heavens and earth. And um, because of that, Demetrius thought, well, what's going to happen to our business? We've got a little nice little business going here. It was going to touch his wallet, wasn't it? It was certainly going to. Mm. And so how could he counter this? 
And so he whipped up some public opinion saying, here we've become famous because of this goddess. The people come here to worship. And now we're being told this sort of worship's a waste of time. They won't come anymore. We're going to lose our mm -hmm. income. And so he organized a riot. I'm interested that uh, Demetrius covered his greed and avarice with a cloak of righteousness. A false piety. A false piety. Mm. He probably did care for the uh, temple of Diana, but uh, there was a lot in it for him, as you have said, Len. Yeah. Uh, we actually could face the same danger of using religion or spirituality um, to, to gain from, and I don't think that that is right. Well, it certainly happened. I mean, a lot of these tele-evangelists, they get people to donate, and what I hear on the news about six months ago, one of them needed a third personal jet plane. Why would you need a third personal jet plane? He was um, one of these tele-evangelists. He was, well, he was just making money out of it, which... Mm. And Very and sad. people people do. People make money yeah. out of Christianity. They'll yeah. make money out of any angle they can get. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Can uh, I ask one of you to please read Acts 20, 7 to 12? Well, perhaps I should read this. <laughs> okay. So we have Paul at Troas. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. He was somebody that fell asleep. Yeah, well, um, I've, I've seen a few people fall asleep during long sermons. <laughs> Not yours, I hope, Lynn. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't look. <laughs> yes. I didn't keep tabs. Mm -hmm. I didn't keep a roll. But you know, this is a very important issue that we're just talking about yes. here. Yes. I have a number of friends who are Sunday worshippers, and they use this text to show that or to show, to try to show, I should say, because I don't think it, it um, proves the point that they're trying to make, that Sunday is the day of worship. And it um, speaks here about the fact that they came together to break bread and on the first day of the week, which we know is Sunday. But further back in uh, early Acts, I think it's Acts 2 or 3, 
It says the disciples came together daily to break bread. Now, some of our Sunday friends, Sunday-keeping friends, say that here you have a special day when they came together to break bread. In other words, to have communion as they extrapolate beyond what the Bible says. No, these people came to, to eat together often, not just on Sunday. And there's another reason giving, given here, because Paul was leaving and he was making the best of the time. We don't know if this is talking about Saturday night or Sunday night. Mm. So the issue is not clear at all. And therefore, you cannot make a case to say that the church was now worshipping on Sunday mm-hmm. because we, we read in other places where Paul and the other disciples worshipped on the seventh day of the week, on the Saturday. Mm. Thank you, Len. Will, did you want to add a comment there? There's probably no reason why he would have been preaching in the synagogues and keeping the Jewish Sabbath all of these years and then suddenly at the end of his ministry uh, decide to change it to Sunday. It doesn't seem conceivable to me. Um, I read a statement um, which is perhaps helpful. You might have partly answered that, Len. The question is, uh, was it the night before Sunday or the night after Sunday? If you look at the text really carefully. The answer depends on what system of time time reckoning uh, Luke is actually using, whether the Jewish system from sundown to sundown or the Roman one from midnight to midnight. It, if it's the former, the, um, the Jewish system, then it was Saturday night. In the case of the Roman uh, calculations, then it was Sunday night. So as you've said, Len, it's very difficult for us to really know. But one incident doesn't change in a complete establishment. No. I want to just share something else. I can't remember the exact text at the moment. But Paul, again, is um, writing to the people. And he, at that time, was involved in raising funds for the church in Jerusalem. Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. And he said to the people, let every one of you put aside something on the first day of the week. Now, this is another issue that some of our Sunday-keeping friends say. Here you have proof. In fact, I read a book a while ago which said um, something to this effect where it says, let, uh, let, them, let you come together and put aside something. But there's no mention of coming together. There was no Sunday meeting. Mm. It was mm. that the people would use a systematic means of giving... It's the first day of the week, put a donation aside for the Jewish people. And then Paul said, and when I come, I will take this with me to Jerusalem. So both of those so-called proof texts are not proof texts at all. They're Mm -hmm. conjecture. Thank you, Len. Okay, so let's move from there on to Acts 20:15 to 27. It tells what happened when Paul made another stop on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, rather than reading all those texts, because there's quite a few, could we summarize briefly what happened? That was Acts 20:15 to 27. Well, we find ourselves, uh, we find uh, in, in Miletus now. 
Acts chapter 20 in verses 15, from verse 15. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after, when we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know I have lived the whole time while I was with you. From the first day I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and uh, in the midst of uh, severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything and would be helpful to you, uh, but that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy City, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Uh, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Well, how many of us, being told by the Holy Spirit that we're going to be imprisoned, we'll never come back, and what's going to happen, would still go ahead? Yeah. That's amazing faith, isn't it? Yeah. You know, th there are two more verses there, Will, that mm -hmm. um, I was hoping you might read. Do you mind if I read them? Go ahead. This is verse 26. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. This brings out the issue of responsibility, mm -hmm. that mm. we as Christians are responsible, as Jesus commissioned in Matthew chapter 28, to share the gospel of God's saving grace with other people. Paul did that in no uncertain way. And he can, he can confidently declare, he said, look, I'm innocent of the blood of other people because I have given them the opportunity to know the grace of God that they might be saved. I thought that was a wonderful testimony that mm. he made. Um, Isn't that also a reference to a text in Ezekiel? Is it Ezekiel? Where it talks about if we don't do these things, the yes. blood... You know, we can share it with people, and if they don't want to accept it, then the blood's on their head. But if we don't share it, the blood is on our head. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We yeah. have a responsibility. We, Good we, point, then. I mm. think we've mentioned this one in one other program, about the sin of commission and the sin of omission. omission. It's just as bad not to do something when something needs to be done as doing something wrong. 
or doing something when something shouldn't be done. Mm. And so for all Christians, we have a responsibility, and that, listeners, is one of the reasons why we're talking to you now. We want to share with you the knowledge of the Bible and also that you can be saved through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, who as God came down to earth, gave his sinless life for your sinless life, that you too can be saved. Absolutely. But Paul had other concerns as well, and perhaps we can go on reading Acts twenty twenty-eight to 31. Let's have a look at the other concerns that he had as well. Acts twenty twenty-eight to 31. Perhaps I should read this one, eh? Thank you, Len. First I have to find it where it starts. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Have I got the right one or have yes. I got the wrong one? No, that's Acts 20, 28 to 31. Oh, I've got to go a bit further. Mm-hmm. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Mm. Paul here is, is saying there is after I'm gone there will come false teachings into the church and we know from the history of the church that little by little false teachings did come in one of those false teachings was the Sunday worship issue it came in after a period of time uh, not in the time that Paul was writing about it or mm. he was sharing with them. Interesting to hear Paul saying, I have warned you. I heard a very good service um, last week, and it was Watchman, What of the Night, and keeping an eye out for people and warning people. And, and yeah, we have a responsibility to do that. Will, I think you have something you want to share. I think church teaching people f- and uh, doing evangelism, as Paul did, um, you would encounter a lot of difficulties. Um, Paul focused on how the church leaders in Ephesus should handle the subject of uh, false teachers um, whom he compared to savage wolves who would uh, try to misguide and pervert the flock. So even in the church itself and even in the earliest days of the church, the danger of false teachers was real. As Solomon said at another time and in another context, There is nothing new under the sun. The history of the Christian church uh, reveals that incredible damages that false teachers have brought to the church, almost insurmountable in some places. The um, problem will exist until the end, of course, as well. Mm. Well, there's no question that Paul had a lot of things on his mind, a lot of concerns, and yet his faithfulness and his diligence never wavered, did it? Never wavered. Well, we're nearly finished uh, with our time, so let's quickly... Someone tell me what happened in Acts 21, 10 to 14. A special incident took place in Caesarea concerning Paul's trip to Jerusalem. Can we summarise or read that text quickly? a prophet who we haven't heard about before, his name was Agabus. 
he came down from Judea and he met Paul and he did something strange. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now Paul had said previously uh, that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he was going to suffer, he would be uh, imprisoned. And now this was being confirmed through the prophet Agabus. Mm. Wow. Will, did you want to share something? Lovely uh, commentary on this um, written about a century ago, I would imagine. Never before had the apostle approached Jerusalem with so sad a heart. He knew that he would find few friends and many enemies. Uh, He was nearing the city which had rejected him and slain the Son of God and uh, over which now hung the threatenings of divine wrath. True, it must have been very hard for him to approach the city of Jerusalem knowing, as you have said, Len, what was waiting for him. Mm. But he didn't do it in his own strength, did he? No, he you need didn't. to remember that. Okay, so we, we need to think about Paul's situation. Mm. He is rejected by his own countrymen who don't believe in Jesus, and even of the Jews who do believe in Jesus, many viewed Paul with great suspicion, even distrust, because they think he is perverting the landmarks. Many of the pagans hate the gospel he's proclaiming, and yet... Well, why did Paul press on, despite all of this oppositions? And though we're not like Paul, I know that, we're all different, we're all individuals. But what can we take away for ourselves from the story that we've studied today? Perhaps um, Len and Will, we could just share very briefly in the the last few minutes a take-home lesson from this. Would you share, please? Well, I guess there are quite a few, but the thing that I thought about was the fact that God promised Paul, that he was with him, and despite all the uh, difficulties and the persecutions and so on, God was faithful. And the thing that I get out of this especially is that God has promised eternal life to those who are faithful to him, despite what may happen to them on the way. And that's what I aim for too. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. What about you, Will? If being a Christian was um, to be fast-tracked onto a bed of roses and a glorious, peaceful life, the whole world, I believe, would see the benefit and all become Christians. But it's not so. Um, Being a Christian, uh, you submit yourself to, you expose yourself to the possibility of being misunderstood, maligned, mistreated, like Paul, Uh, but I think what we learn from Paul is is that despite all of these things stacking against him, he was willing to carry on for God. Absolutely. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Len and Will. I'd just like to say, listeners, that these are amazing, amazing um, texts to study, and please take time to do that. But next week we are going to see what happens when Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to the day that we can talk to Paul in the kingdom made new and hear about his exploits from his actual point of view as well. I think it's going to be fascinating to hear him. 
I look forward to that day too. As long as we don't sit in an upstairs window while we're talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, Len, would you like to just close with prayer for our listeners? Thank you. Father in heaven, we thank you for the example of the work of those who've gone before, thinking particularly of the Apostle Paul. May we be as faithful as he was. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.